All right. Ready to go on? Ready. Okay. A historic moment. We've heard this phrase many times over 2020 and into the new year. It may feel like it has lost some meaning at this point, but there really isn't a better phrase to describe what we're all experiencing. In this episode of Stories from the Floodplain, we're honored to be joined by Colin O'Mara, President and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation. With the upcoming inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden, Colin gives us insight into what the future might hold for the environment, public health, and the climate crisis that isn't slowing down. He also discusses how the roles of environmental organizations are shifting during a time of significant social change and division. What bold actions do we need to take to address some of our biggest issues of the day? PRN's Robert Hirschfeld leads the conversation. Let's begin. I am here today with Colin O'Mara, President and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation. Colin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Robin. Excited to be with you. How are you doing? How is 2021 treating you and NWF? Yeah, so so far 2021 is feeling a lot like 2020. Um, <laughs> I feel like, you know, with the pandemic raging in this part of the country and you know, access sedition on the in the hill, um, you know, we're, we're you know, living through the impeachment right now um, of, I would argue, the you know, greatest acts of treason by an American president in our history. And so, yeah, it's, a, it's been kind of a whirlwind. No, no rest for the weary. Yeah, it's simultaneously shocking and also kind of the logical consequence of everything that's led up to this point. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> how do we get off this ride? I, I don't know. Maybe let's talk about that a little bit in, ter- in the context of you know, what comes next um, in the world of environmental policy, especially at the federal level um, with a new administration coming in. Um, first, I wanna give anyone who's listening to this a chance to understand who you are and what NWF is. Um, so let's imagine I'm, I'm a new acquaintance with whom you're striking up a conversation. I don't know anything about conservation organizations or even conservation itself. So in, you know, plain English, what is it that NWF does and, and what do you as president and CEO, you know, what is it that you do? Yeah. So uh, as head of the, the National Wildlife Federation, um, so the Federation itself is America's largest wildlife conservation organization. Um, we're different than other groups in that we we're a federation. Um, we have amazing state affiliates in all 50 states like Prairie Rivers. Um, and, and we you know, try to bring together folks across the political spectrum, across the demographic spectrum um, you know, from all corners of the country, trying to find you know, that sweet spot of things we can actually agree on as, as Americans for our natural resources, for um, our air, our water, our wildlife, um, and you know, increasingly working to try to address you know, longstanding environmental injustices as well. Um, you know, some of your listeners may have, may have read Ranger Rick magazine as a kid, that's us. Um, you know, we are <laughs> the proud publishers of that great publication and zoo books as well, which some of your listeners may know if they have kids. Um, but really trying to do everything we can, whether that's legislative policy, whether that's projects on the ground, whether that's you know, education work in classrooms, um, whether that's you know, just partnering with great organizations in you know, every, every community across the country, uh, trying to, to show how healthy natural resources is, are both good for you know, people and for wildlife. So we're in a period of transition right now politically. After four years as president, Donald Trump is leaving office. Joe Biden will be sworn in in a couple of days. <laughs> Although who knows, maybe there will be an interim president even then, <laughs> even between. Um, one, so I, I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast because you're obviously well positioned 
to tell listeners what this transition means for the environment and for environmental policy, something I think they will be uh, very much interested in. You know, the last four years, we've seen the rollback of a lot of environmental protections. Um, Trump's EPA allowed for increased carbon emissions from power plants and cars, removed protections from streams and wetlands, removed protections on wildlife, opened up more public lands for drilling and, and mining. This is just the tip of the iceberg. New York Times has done a great job documenting all of this and you know they, they list more than 100 rollbacks of environmental rules. So how do you expect the Biden administration to respond to these rollbacks? How do you think it should respond? Yeah, it's a, so look, we've seen the, as you said, we've seen the, the most, you know, kind of devastating regulatory, anti-regulatory agenda um, in, in our history, in our lifetimes at least, um, over the last four years. And at the same time, you know, the challenges we face are, you know, exacerbated, um, both because of those rollbacks as well as other other challenges we face. And so, I mean, you're going to see this scenario where the Biden administration is going to have to simultaneously rebuild institutional capacity because there's also the institutions themselves, especially like EPA, um, are down so many bodies, so many career experts have retired or or just left. Um, you you have to you know kind of restore basic protections for clean air, clean water, as you said. You know we've seen everything from protections that you know would have prevented, you know, re would have reduced you know, mercury emissions or you know the amount of you know, hard, hazardous hazardous and toxic chemicals in our air and our water um, being you know eviscerated over the last few years. And at the same time, we know that we're facing an escalating climate crisis that. Um, you know, threatens, you know, all kinds of to wreak havoc on, on, on communities and on in all kinds of ways from more extreme weather events to higher temperatures to sea level rise to you know, more the spread of disease and everything else. And so, I mean, I think what you're going to see is you know, kind of a, a significant prioritization of, you know, the ones that are going to have the biggest impact and really trying to focus on um, reductions that have, the, I also have the uh, focusing on reductions that the work to achieve those reductions are also going to create a lot of jobs. Because you know, one thing that's challenging right now is not only do we have to rebuild the federal government, not only do we have to restore basic public health protections, we're also you know, going to be operating in a pandemic and then an economic recession um, and how we get out of those. And so thinking through you know, the types of investments that actually you know, reduce you know, emissions. So for example, you know, more clean energy on the landscape that's going to displace dirtier sources of energy and at the same time you know, create a bunch of construction jobs, hopefully with good wages, um, you know, is a, is a better strategy, right? The things that just feel, you know, just kind of more traditionally, pure, kind of purely regulatory. But I, I just think it's it's a it's a daunting task because even though they were in office for four years, the amount of damage they did um, is is you know extends well beyond that. They they went back much deeper than the the four years of uh, time they had in office. After the Georgia elections last week, there's a 50-50 split, tie-breaking vote with the Vice President Harris. Um, what do you think? You know what can Biden do strictly through the executive branch versus what do you what needs to happen through Congress, um, and how optimistic are you that the Biden administration can can get these things done on either track? Most of the regulatory authorities exist with the agency. So you know, for those of your listeners that care deeply about you know clean water protections or clean air protections, and even a lot of the climate reductions, um, particularly in the power plant sector and the transportation sector, a lot of those things can be done regulatorily. Um, what what it can't do by itself is is the financial side, the money side, and and so I think you're going to see, you know, the Biden administration um, work, you know, very closely with Congress on a, a massive infrastructure package and kind of recovery package. And you know, we're talking you know two three trillion dollars, um, which is you know two to three times bigger than the recovery package 
from the 2009 um, uh, Recovery Act that that passed after the uh, the Great Recession. And and so I mean I think what you're going to see is hopefully you know massive investments in you know in cleaning up waterways in restoring um, restoring uh, degraded lands and you know everything from you know urban brownfields to you know coal you know to to coal reclamation and everything in between. Um, but they're really going to turn to Congress to, to focus on the, the resource piece. And what the Georgia election does, it allows to significantly increase the level of ambition. Um, in a you know in a Republican Senate, you know the infrastructure package would have been likely smaller. Um, the ability for clean energy to be kind of a centerpiece would have been somewhat muted. And so now now all of a sudden now I think you know the level of ambition can increase dramatically for or significantly. For you know for some of your listeners, there's you know there's kind of a couple different ways that things can pass the U.S. Senate. Um, there is this one kind of budgetary rule called reconciliation, which is the way the Republicans have pushed through some of their big tax cuts and, and some of the efforts to repeal parts of um, of, of of different you know of the, the Arctic protections and other and other vehicles. Um, and there's also and I've seen there's also a way that the Democrats moved moved the um, moved the Affordable Care Act through. Um, and so you could use that vehicle to move a massive infrastructure package. And so we've been working with folks on both sides of the aisle trying to make this bipartisan, but if it can't be, then you know, not sacrificing it to the level of ambition um, just because of vote counting, really trying to have as much as possible because I'm convinced that the best way to achieve emission reductions and kind of a lot of the natural resource um, improvements that we need in the, in the immediate near term is going to be more of a directed investment strategy than a more traditional regulatory strategy. How optimistic are you that some of this legislation could be bipartisan, e even if only a few were brought over? Um, and and what does it say if it's not? I mean, if this just ends up being full partisan split and and the vice president breaks the tie, like you know that that seems almost two different worlds um, where uh, the meaning of of that legislation could be could be vastly different. Yeah, no, I think that that's exactly the right um, question. And like, I, I'm actually pretty optimistic that it will be bipartisan. Um, I think, you know, in the past year, we've seen, you know, John Barrasso, who's running the Environment and Public Works Committee, um, work with Tom Carper on, you know, pretty big water infrastructure packages and, and, um, and transportation packages that included pretty significant climate portions, whether that was clean energy or advanced transportation solutions or resilience. Um, that was all completely bipartisan um, in a smart way. Now, most of, that, most of that work wasn't funded yet. So a lot of that could roll into an infrastructure package. We just passed a, a pretty massive energy package as part of the end of the year deal, which included you know, pretty sizable um, proposed investments in a whole range of clean energy technologies. And so I'm, I'm optimistic. I mean, I think, you know, if there's ever a time to, you know, to, to deficit spend, um, to, you know, I'd argue, you know, kind of a massive recession. This is maybe the inner Keynesian me talking, but the, uh, you know, using the fiscal stimulus kind of powers that the federal government does have that states don't have and you know obviously local governments they have to balance their budgets don't have um to help us get out of this recession but doing it in a way that's building towards you know 2050 as opposed to back to 1950 um seems like a pretty you know bipartisan place to start so i actually i'm actually pretty confident i think there's you know as many as 20 republicans that you know could support a, a pretty massive infrastructure package how might economic stimulus and infrastructure play into addressing the climate crisis? I mean, like, I think, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if we're using a benchmark of getting to kind of net zero or, you know, 100% reductions, uh, net reductions by 2050 as the benchmark, I think we can, through investments, I think we can get to 30, 30 to 50% of that way. Um, I think there's some sectors that are more complicated. 
you know, there's some sectors that lend themselves to regulation, right? The power plant sector. There's other places like the industrial sector where, you know, we already have challenges manufacturing in this country, you know, upgrading manufacturing facilities to, you know, get towards much cleaner processes, you know, some level of carbon capture, um, you know, and also reducing the criteria pollutants that you know, harm so many frontline communities. Uh, it's much like much much more likely to be successful in enduring through an investment-based strategy than a regulatory strategy that just gets whipsawed every time there's a change in administration. You know, agriculture is kind of the same thing, right? It's kind of hard to regulate a lot of the carbon emissions in the agriculture sector, but there are some pretty powerful tools on the investment side as well as some market tools that you know could could help at least begin to kind of show the value and ideally have folks you know, value the carbon that could be harvested and be rewarded for that. And so I'm I'm optimistic that you know a really robust infrastructure package could get us well on the way to you know 30 to 40 percent of emission reductions below um, whether we use 2016 baseline or 20, 2008 or 2005. Um, but you know get us well down the path to get you know because I want to I want to make sure we're in a position to be down at least 50 percent in emissions by 2030. And I think you know if a two to three trillion dollar investment would get us well and well towards that goal. We are almost a year in the U.S. into the COVID yeah. pandemic. Um, the United States has poorly managed the COVID crisis. I, I think that's an objective fact. Um, this crisis is an immediate and obvious crisis, literally with bodies piling up every day. Today, more uh, yesterday, today, more than 4,000 people died of COVID. That was single day record. Given our inability to handle this crisis, why should we expect to handle an even thornier, more, you know, somewhat inchoate and diffused climate crisis? How, like, how can we be optimistic that we are capable of dealing, addressing that? Yeah, and no, I appreciate the question, Robert. I mean, like, I think leadership matters and confidence matters. And, you know, for the last few years, we've had folks leading agencies whose primary goal was kind of antithetical to the mission of the agencies that they were leading. And we had a president that you know, didn't really have interest in, in you know, leading on these issues and actively opposed you know, basic science and um, you know, just showed a complete disdain for trying to make progress. And so you know, I, I think you know, we, have to, we have to win the battle of kind of convincing folks to have confidence in the competence of government, government again. Um, but we don't have a choice. I mean, there's, you know, the catastrophic consequences of failure are are just mind blowing. Um, you know, even just what we've seen the last few years with you know, historic levels of fire and the intensity of them and some of the floods we've seen in your neck of the woods, some of the, the challenges we've seen on the East Coast with some of the hurricanes. Um, you know, we don't we don't have a choice. And so I, I think it's one of those places where, you know, having, you know, folks of, of goodwill all you know, kind of part joining effort to try to make sure we're not just making the big changes. Um, in legislatures, but also, you know, through the executive branch, through state governments, is going to be incredibly important because we've really put ourselves behind the eight ball with four years of, you know, kind of sliding backwards. Um, you know, now's the time to show that we can actually make big things happen again in this country. You mentioned before that um, a lot of regulatory policy and enforcement is done at the, uh, the executive, you know, through the executive branch, through the agencies. Uh, what do you think of Biden's appointees and his cabinet thus far? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm good friends with most of them. Um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good group. Uh, I mean, Jim McCarthy has been a friend and mentor of mine for well over a decade at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, she sees the, 
opportunities across the administration in very you know, kind of creative ways. And I think, you know, she proved obviously to be a pretty effective EPA administrator. Um, you know, Deb Holland at Interior is a, a good friend, um, you know, and she's been a, a great champion in the house. She's been carrying so many of our natural resource priorities from, you know, protecting and restoring public lands and recovering America's Wildlife Act, um, her great work with corridors. I mean, so I, I think, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, really try to support her and help her get it confirmed quickly. You know, Tom Vilsack, we've, we've worked with, we agree on a lot of issues. There's some obviously places we disagree on. Um, and, you know, I, I think you're going to see hopefully a more progressive um, USDA than maybe in the past. Uh, but I've already been in conversations with him about priorities around grasslands, restoration, and, you know, climate um, and, you know, the role the USDA could play. The Forest Service obviously needs a, a lot more resources to do the, the work they need to do. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited there. I don't, I don't know um, Michael Reagan as well. Um, I've met with him a few times um, from North Carolina. Um, I think he's exciting. He's done some kind of really interesting things in, in North Carolina. Um, EPA needs work. Um, I mean, the, the, the staffing capacities, like I mentioned before, um, they're down so much. It's, it's really terrifying. Um, and so, you know, we'll be, we'll be helping the, um, helping them all hopefully get confirmed quickly and then building teams. And, you know, the other thing that comes out of the Georgia election is that, you know, the confirmation processes should be slightly smoother and, maybe a little quicker to fill out the teams. I mean, it's still pretty unbelievable to me that, you know, for the most part, you know, the um, the Trump administration never ended up filling, you know, most positions with confirmed people. I mean, the, the number of positions, I mean, like the Park Service, for example, I don't think ever, ever had a confirmed director in four years. Um, you know, having talented folks that are confirmed and ready to work is going to be incredibly important in doing all the things you asked in your, your previous question. There's been debate and some criticism of a, of, from some quarters of, of a few of the appointees you know, the Sunrise Movement, which is a youth-led climate organization, they were critical of Brian Deese, who was picked to um, be the director of the National Economic Council. In our neck of the woods, some of the smartest people I know working on ag are, to put it mildly, skeptical of the Tom Bilsack USDA pick because they see it, you know, he, he's, he's been there before. They see that as um, an endorsement of the status quo, a status quo that has meant devastating environmental impacts from ag, you know, pollution of waterways, uh, uh, an ongoing crisis here in the Midwest with pesticide drift, consolidation of meatpacking and the livestock sector. And that's something we saw <laughs> horrible consequences during COVID where, you know, meatpacking plants became uh, ground zero for a lot of these COVID outbreaks. And then the fact that there are so few because of Collins consolidation that led to meat shortages. Um, you know, it's well documented um, that there have been racial disparities and discrimination in the ag sector. Um, some serious, serious problems going back decades within ag, you know, and so I, you know, I know people who are, who are critical of that. My question is, what do you see as the role for, you know, does that kind of split among the left, quote unquote, is that concerning or what is the, you know, what is the role of activists versus, you know, kind of insider establishment politics? You know, what, how do you, how do you see that playing out? Yeah. I mean, look, I think, I think the progressive energy in this election in particular was critical to victory. Right. And I think, you know, folks, the fact that, you know, the, the president elect ran on, you know, the most aggressive kind of climate and conservation agenda ever, um, put a pretty big marker on the ground. He didn't shy away from it in the general election, like we've seen in the past. Um, you know, I think we work closely with, with Sunrise, you know, I think you know, on, on a lot of different things. We don't agree on everything, um, but there's, you know, there's obviously huge areas of agreement. 
um, you know, across the, the community. You know, I, I, we disagreed on you know, some of the criticism on, on Brian Deese in particular. I've known Brian for a long time. Um, you know, a lot of the, the things that we credit President Obama with, uh, frankly, would not have happened um, in, in the climate space if it wasn't for Brian's leadership. And so, you know, I've never seen him, um, I've never seen him pull a punch. I've never seen him um, you know, step back from you know, kind of aggressive climate policy in any chance. And if anything, you know, I, I, I sort of wish, wish some of the um, uh, folks that had concerns had more chances to get to know him and had seen some of the things and some of the fights in the Obama administration. Because frankly, when the, um, you know, there, there were some pretty big challenges, especially in the first term of the Obama administration to do big things on climate. And Brian was kind of elevated in the second term. And that's when things started to happen. And so um, I, I credit him with a lot of that. I think on the on the Secretary Vilsack side, um, look, I mean, there there are concerns in the in the agriculture kind of community, right? They, in the in the NGO community, um, I think he's done a good job trying to reach out to folks. Um, we've already had some conversations, like I mentioned, but you know the the consolidation that we've seen, you know the um, the inequities in terms of access to capital. I mean, the challenges for black farmers, the challenges for young farmers. I mean, just the the squeezing out of folks, you know, and the and kind of the loss of land over over generations and the inability to access capital to acquire new lands has obviously got to be a top priority. And we're working with the black farmers and others, uh, other NGOs trying to you know rectify some of those in very specific rec recommendations. And I think that this is where the the activism is at its best when it's you know specific and actionable. Right. And I think, you know, the more the more specific we are and what we want um, and what change we want to see and what things we want to see prioritized, the more the more effective we're going to be. Um, you know, and then like in, in my conversations with the secretary, I think, you know, they did some decent things on climate. I think I think, you know, I think they try to do some things internally on the equity side. I think they have they have miles and miles to go. Um, and I think, frankly, having somebody that knows what they're doing on day one and at the same time recognizes, you know, some places maybe they fall a little short and some places they need to push forward. Um, you know, it's hopefully going to lead to some you know, pretty big changes, but you know, that's where, that's where, you know, there's gotta be some accountability and gotta be some very clear, um, uh, very clear eyed, you know, priorities shared with, uh, with each of them. The new administration's biggest challenge and biggest opportunity. What do you, what do you see? I mean, I think the biggest opportunity is, is, is infrastructure. I mean, like the number of folks, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, obviously we're talking more about, you know, conservation and environmental issues today, but you know, if you're looking at 30, 40 million people out of work, uh, a big chunk of whom are either unemployed or underemployed, um, the, the vast majority of those are going to be young folks, um, the bigger, and the vast majority of those are going to be folks of color. Um, I mean, if we don't, if we don't take this moment to create economic opportunity to deal with some of the economic inequities, um, you know, I think you'll continue to see a greater, greater, you know, kind of stratification and greater um, division within society. And, you know, and I think obviously a lot of the, you know, the challenge we're facing is that the, the economic realities of, you know, so a lot of communities are uncertain right now. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, the, the headlines are going you know, to focus more on, you know, the, the retail sector and the and your restaurants and hotels and, and those kind of things. But I mean, we have all, all kinds of parts of the economy are collapsing right now. Right. And, you know, when you think about, you know, in the, in the climate space, you know, you think about the, you just the, just the, the rapid um, deterioration of jobs in, in coal, for example, or, you know, the, the massive demand shock on, on oil and gas, you know, reducing jobs and, you know, jobs in that sector, not having kind of thoughtful policies to help folks, you know, find other employment of equal means. I mean, like we, we've handled these transitions so poorly. And like, I mean, I grew up in upstate New York. I mean, we were decimated by some of the trade deals of the eighties and nineties um, when a lot of the manufacturing up there really struggled. 
Um, I think the opportunity through infrastructure, through investment to try to lift up and revitalize and diversify economies to make sure they compete and make sure there's good opportunities um, may be the greatest one of all, because it's the one piece that if we do it right, it also addresses the climate crisis, addresses many of the racial inequities, and it also addresses many of the economic inequities. Um, and so I'm, I'm very optimistic on that. The vice president, or the president-elect, so I got to break myself of calling him that. Um, <laughs> so used to it. Um, I think he gets it um, in, a, in a kind of a visceral way, um, the, the, the jobs pieces in particular. But I, I think at the end of the day, I mean, if we don't do right by folks that you know, powered the, the last century, if we don't do right by folks that have been in frontline communities, you know, suffering the brunt of a lot of the pollution, if we don't do right by folks that are struggling right now, um, I, think, I just think the divisions and the, um, yeah, and just the, just the anxiety we're seeing across society will just continue to worsen and worsen. There's so much that clearly needs to be done. You know, in Chicago, there's so many, there's a huge lead problem, lead pipe problem. I mean, from there to, you know, rural Illinois, um, reviving rural communities and, and, and farming. It's, yeah, I agree. It would be a, a shame if we missed this opportunity. Um, yeah, well, and to that point, right? I mean, like we've been working with, with your team and others on you know, kind of promoting the, the idea of restarting the Civilian Conservation Corps. Right, finding ways to put a ton of folks to work. And again, there's some infrastructure stuff you're going to need, you know, skilled laborers and the unions and the building trades to, to do. There's also a lot of other work that, you know, maybe doesn't require the same level of skill or could be done in partnership where folks are in, you know, pre-apprenticeship programs or kind of a pathway to a career. But I mean, God, we just, we've, we've allowed so many things to, you know, kind of crumble on over the last couple of decades and so many systems to fail. And, um, you know, I just think there's so much work to go around. It would be a shame to, you know, not use this moment to both you know, fix so many things that are broken while you know, hopefully building skills and careers that are going to help uplift families for uh, you know the next generation. So I want to talk a little bit about um, move away from policy and talk a little bit about uh, what organizations like ours ought to be doing in this moment, 2021, to meet various challenges <laughs> that we're facing as collectively as a society. NWF is a big tent organization. You pride yourself clearly on working with left and right, red and blue, urban and rural. Um, but you can't deny that environment and climate has much like everything else in this country become deeply, deeply politicized. Um, though I, I think even more than about politics, it's really about culture. It's become part, one more front in the culture war. Is there a path to moving protection of the environment and <laughs> protection of human health and taking action on climate, all of which are interrelated? Is there a path to moving those out of the culture war? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think there is. Um, and I think, I think some of it is really showing the benefits locally. I think a lot of the opposition that's kind of emerged over the last several years, I mean, some of it's obviously very well funded on, at the, the corporate ranks, but a lot of it, I think, it comes out of you know fear of of losing jobs that they have and not having confidence that the jobs of the future are going to emerge. And so I'll use just I mean the transition to clean energy is a, a good example. You know the average person that's moving, um, the average you know barge worker that's moving coal on the Ohio River right now, probably making eighty thousand dollars a year. Average solar job right now, you know, in some places is maybe as little as twelve bucks an hour, fourteen bucks an hour. Right. And so if we're saying that, you know, we want you to move into this other sector, but the sector is going to pay, you know, 40 percent, 50 percent less than the, what the work they're doing right now, it just creates economic anxiety. Um, and so I, I just think 
it's always easier to rally around kind of what you have. Um, and and we, I think we see that over and over again. We see, look, we see that in the agriculture space. We see it in other places where, you know, folks are, are hesitant to, to change because the uncertainty, and I, I think I think a lot of the uncertainty is economic. Obviously, it's other, other factors as well. But I, I just think in the last Congress, you know, watching like the Great American Outdoors Act pass, watching watching things like the like the public lands package. There's a bunch of uh, sportsman work. There's a bunch of things around water infrastructure um, that were completely bipartisan, right? And so there's something there, right? The energy package that just passed at the at the as part of the end of the year package. So I, I actually think that the politics are are moving pretty quickly right now. I attribute some of it to just the the indis, in, inescapable, undeniable impacts that we're seeing on the ground. You know, I, I think because like I'm not seeing the level of denialism that we saw five years ago, right, or three years ago even. I mean, I think, you know, when, when community after community are washed out by floods or fires, or you know, I mean, I, I just think there's a there's a acknowledgement of the science. Now, there's that, I'm not proposing that means everyone's going to be for carbon pricing tomorrow or going to be for you know, kind of some version of a of a green new deal. But like, I I do think that if if I think I think the, I think the president likes that right, right? If climate equals jobs right, we win, right? If environmental restoration, environmental protection means, you know, more prosperity, like we win those arguments. If it's seen as a job killer, um, particularly during a recession, we're going to continue having these both regional and kind of section by sec sector by sector, you know, battles that we continue to be in. And like, and there's some places where um, we got to tell the successes that we're having, right? I mean, we know places where we've done good work on, you know, remediating lead, right? The kids are healthy and they're doing better, right? Like we know there's places where you know, folks have adopted more sustainable practices in agriculture are actually more profitable, right? That they're able to sell into new markets. Um, I just think it's, we have to find better ways to communicate, you know, kind of the successes that we're having and to hopefully scale them up that way. The first time in my life, uh, you know, the transition, the peaceful transition of power from one presidency to the next has been, is in question. There are many reasons to be concerned about the health of our not democracy. Um, you know, I think one thing that's driving that is that we cannot agree about facts, let alone responses to facts. And much of the country is awash in conspiracy theories and misinformation. How do we operate in that world? You know, how, how do you take good faith efforts? You know, how, how can you move forward good faith efforts to address some of these problems when we just can't agree on what is. Yeah, no, it's, it's like, this is one of the biggest challenges we face, right? I mean, the days of, you know, of Cronkite, you know, kind of having a singular voice on the news, right? It's been obliterated by, you know, this, just the range of um, outlets with a very specific agenda behind them. Uh, like, uh, so much, so much of the advocacy work you know, in the advocacy community has been built around this idea that if we just had more science, we just had more facts, we just had better data, folks would make good decisions. I mean, in hindsight, I mean, that, that did incredible good, right? I mean, like you think about the great acts in the 1970s, um, and obviously, you know, science and data were driving behind it. I do think in our rush to build so much kind of technocratic expertise that we've forgotten a lot of the social science. And I think, especially as some of the bigger groups have become more national um, and even international in some cases, not so much us, but some others, um, that the, the hard work on the ground is often being missed. And, and, and then a lot of it comes back to like actual conversations with folks. And, you know, I often say that, I often say that, um, you know, it's, it's one thing, I mean, if, if somebody's like, you know, hearing a lot of, you know, disinformation, if you're just feeding in additional information that's more accurate, it still, it all seems like noise, 
But if you can connect with somebody what they're seeing on the ground, the experiences that they're having, right, then at least you got a fighting chance. And again, I'm not talking about the kind of the folks that are buying some of these kind of crazy conspiracy theories, but there's a lot of folks that, you know, when you talk to them about like fires raging in their backyard, right, or a flood that wiped out their property or a hurricane that, you know, is more powerful than anything we've ever seen. Um, you know, there's a connection point there, at least, to begin a conversation about, you know, kind of real facts and on the ground. And one of my very first jobs in, in government, I was an intern just for a very short amount of time for um, a, a senator from New York named Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And he had this great saying where you say, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinions, but not their own facts. The fact that we are in a place where folks come with their own facts that are, you know, many of which are just made up just shows how much work we have to do. But I do think it's critical for NGOs in particular like ours to be you know, engaged in actual you know, direct communication with people and not assuming that, you know, stuff we put out through social media is going to kind of get the job done just because there's so much disinformation and it's harder that way, right? I mean, going person by person is, you know, exhausting, but it's also the, the way to make, you know, meaningful change. And, you know, I mean, some of the last folks we've hired in our, in our fantastic agriculture program have been social scientists, you know, trying to think through how do we, you know, how do we work with folks, how do we communicate in ways that are better and that can actually penetrate given all, all that we're up against. 2020 put the spotlight on racial justice in a way and at a level that um, I had not seen before. Uh, and at least for a moment, there was kind of a mainstreaming of what was once maybe radical rhetoric uh, and policy around racial justice, policing, social justice. I think part of that was a recognition uh, on the part of organizations and institutions, both large and small, that these organizations and institutions were not, had not been working for justice, that they weren't benefiting everyone, and in fact, might have been upholding injustice. What do you think conservation organizations, large, like National Wildlife Federation, or smaller and local, more local, like Prairie Network, how do, how do these organizations need to evolve? Yeah. Look, I think we have to embrace equity and justice in the work that we do. Um, and I think that means not just, um, it's got to be kind of central um, to the organization in, in many ways. And so, you know, in our case, you know, I mean, we're, we're obviously leaning heavily into the environmental justice space and really trying to make the connection that this isn't, this isn't kind of mission creep or this is central to our mission, right? I mean, if we, if we want healthy wildlife populations, you know, you can't have healthy fish populations if you have you know, massive amounts of mercury or lead in the water, right? I mean, like there are there are connections between humans and and and, and wildlife that I think often, um, you know, NGOs in our in my space at least, in our space, you know, haven't always made as eloquently. And frankly, you guys have been doing a better job of this than I think we have um, for you know the way you talk about you know kind of human health and you know, kind of drawing those connections in real real visceral ways. And so I think you know in, in our case, the external work around environmental justice being an authentic partner, really leaning in in authentic ways, whether that's with frontline communities or, you know, with black leaders or with you know, did the indigenous community or the you know, Latino and Latino led organizations. Um, you know, it's everything. It, and, and for me, it, it, some of the connections are obvious, but they just have been, you know, because of the, you know, kind of kind of systemic racism that's in the in the conservation space hasn't always been brought to the forefront in as big of a, a way. Um, but, you know, the healthy soils, right, that are good for everybody, right, have huge justice implications, the work on water infrastructure, the work on um, you know, industrial facilities that work on, on extractive industries. Um, so I, I think that work is incredibly important. And I think, frankly, 
you know, we, we were talking a lot of the Federation about the Hamez principles and trying to do much more like authentic engagement um, and not having kind of the white supremacy of kind of, you know, we're, we're from a national NGO here, we are to help, but actually doing the authentic listening, having folks on the ground and then you know, having that you know, kind of permeate the way that decisions are made and resources are allocated. Um, and then on the inside work, I mean, I, I think we all have work to do, right? I mean, you know, we were a you know, predominantly white-led organization when I started, but that's evolving. Um, my predecessor actually did some good work on this too, but I didn't get far enough. But you know, we do have a you know kind of a challenging culture for folks of color that we're working through um, and trying to bring more folks on, trying to build folks' equity competencies in real ways, trying to hold people accountable for their their equity competencies, um, and really trying to make sure that we're rooting out the you know some of the more racist systems and um, just just challenges that folks face on the burdens they have to carry, um, many of which um, just because of people's implicit biases or uh, kind of a lack of understanding often you know, manifest and end up end up causing significant harm. And so we're working on that right now. Um, we have a ways to go. I, mean, I think one of the first steps is naming it and being willing to admit that we have a, a challenge and having the and bringing in the the expertise to really work through it. But um, we have to evolve. We have to become, you know, as, as Mustafa Santiago Ali, our, our fabulous vice president for environmental justice, says, you know, we got to become a 21st century organization. And the only way to do that is have real talk. Where um, you know we actually talk about the uh, the challenge we're facing, where we're trying to go, and how we're going to get there. Is mission creep a concern? Um, I mean, you know, you you're a federation. You've got affiliates in every state. I'm sure they have different ideas. I would be shocked if some weren't concerned about mission creep. Um, you know, from us, from our perspective, it, it is direct line. You know, with racial injustice, environmental injustice. Downstream communities are often people of color getting the you know bearing the worst brunt of pollution, or you know, lead and drinking water, air pollution, um, you know. And then there's then there are issues that may not be as obvious. For example, Sierra Club, one of the most well-known environmental organizations, you know, last year in the wake of the protests around the extrajudicial killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. You know, they called for defunding the police. That's, you know, that's maybe an extraordinary step for an environmental organization. How do you evaluate the boundaries at NWF or another environmental, historically environmental organization? How do we evaluate the boundaries you set up on the scope of your work? You know, there's just, there's so many morally urgent issues, literally life and death issues facing communities, our country, <laughs> the planet itself, you know, can, can you be everything at once? And, and how do you decide what to do? Yeah, no, we're, we're struggling with this right now, right? And in, in real time as, as we speak. I mean, I, I think for us, we also agree that you know, a lot of these things are a straight line, right? I mean, having, especially things related to public health and human health, um, when they're environmental drivers or you know, pollution drivers that are, are causing the harms. So I think, I think that's pretty you know, straightforward. I think also getting at some of the systemic inequalities that are preventing folks from being able to, you know, kind of realize their full potential um, are also, you know, really connected. And, and I think it's, it's an interesting evolution. I mean, you've, you know, you've been part of the Federation family for a while. And I think, you know, there's conversations we can have today that we couldn't have three years ago um, around, around these issues. I think there's a awareness that, you know, if we, if we really want to build, you know, true political power and, you know, really win some of these bigger, these bigger battles, we need to be much more intersectional in the way that we, you know, kind of think about coalitions and the way that we, the way that we do our work. And so I, I just, I don't know, I'm, I'm actually proud of the, of the kind of evolution we're going through, you know, and again, I mean, you know, Sierra Club is probably, you know, a little more on the vanguard than, than we are on, on, on some issues. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, 
a lot of the same challenges that are affecting, you know, you know, black folks living, you know, in a frontline community in a more urban environment are similar in many cases, the same issues that are affecting, you know, poor white folks that are you know, living in a more rural environment. And a lot of the, um, you know, especially pollution related, you know, health, health challenges, um, we can find ways to actually stitch these things together. I mean, in the, in the, the last package uh, for water infrastructure for the SRFs, the state revolving funds, you know, the very conservative center from Wyoming included an entire section around helping frontline communities and you know, having a lot more set asides for um, you know, folks of different income levels and trying to make sure there's more resources. And again, he was thinking more about it from you know, rural folks having you know, nitrates in, in water systems and in, in Wyoming more so than folks that are <clears throat> in Chicago that have lead pipes. But the policy mechanism for the same. And so I think for our federation, I, I think, you know, as long as it comes back to people and, and, and wildlife and natural resources, you know, we'll keep making progress. And I think folks are thinking about things much more intersectionally than a few years ago. I think it's just, I think it's moving very fast right now in very encouraging ways. And that's just a matter of landing the policies that we need to make the change we want. Yesterday, January 12th, NWF called for Donald Trump to be removed for from the office of the presidency for inciting insurrection, that's also an extraordinary step for um, a wildlife conservation organization. Why did NWF feel the need to issue that statement? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, all the work that we do depends on democratic institutions, right? I mean, at, at the heart of what we do is that we are an advocacy organization trying to drive change. And, you know, what we saw last week was an, an insurrection, right? We saw an attempted coup by a fascist mob that tried to overthrow the results of an election. and and you know, this, given all the work you want to do, um, all the things you want to do for wildlife and for climate and water and infrastructure, I mean, all the things you want to do, they depend on a healthy, healthy democratic form of government. I mean, if you look out throughout world history, wildlife and people, for that matter, don't don't fare very well under fascist regimes, right? We don't fare very well in non-democratic institutions. I mean, if you look at the desecration of resources, um, you know, it's much greater at a much greater rate in in kind of more dictatorial type um, uh, governments. And so for me, like there's a there's a moral piece because you know it's, just, it's the right thing to do to stand up for the bedrock of our of our of our kind of country institutions. Um, but it's also the, the right thing to do from the resource. Um, you know, we can't allow these these <clears throat> these systems to be eroded in a meaningful way. Um, it's also and it's also the, you know, again, and, and there's been some back and forth even today um, within our within our family. Um, some folks are concerning that it's, you know, again, mission creep, like the, the language you used before, or drift, I think you said. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we have to be on the side of, you know, strong, healthy, democratic institutions, because the, if left to their own, left to, you know, kind of other devices, um, the things that we care about that our mission is, was specifically set up to attain just cannot be achieved. And so I think that's the, that's the reason we made the position, the reason the board came out so strongly. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll try to convince everybody it was the right thing to do. And hopefully we'll see a bipartisan vote later today. Now that you've opened that door, how do you stop it, Trump? I mean, you know, one question I would just have about it is asking for one person to step down. Does that somehow, does it assume into it that Donald Trump himself is, um, you know, he has somehow outside of an apparatus that, you know, he, to, to me, he is the culmination of a media and political environment that was, you know, that, and, and many others enabled what happened. 
um, last Wednesday, you know, how do you call on one person to um, step down when, or <laughs> when many others were saying the same thing about um, the validity of the election, what they were saying, their rhetoric, their, you know, what they were saying online, what they were saying in the, the, the rallies or whatever was also inciting um, incite, incitement of the mob. Um, we're having this conversation in real time right now because we talked in our statement about, you know, kind of holding accountable those that kind of abetted the, the attempted coup and some of the ongoing violence. And we're probably seeing more violence in the, in the coming days, unfortunately. Um, you know, I think, I think as, like, as it, be, if it becomes more and more clear that, you know, certain individuals kind of conspired, you know, with the infiltration of the Capitol, I mean, of course, I think you're going to see um, movements to try to expel some individuals who, uh, or at least censure um, some individuals. And so I think as we learn more, but I, I agree with you. I mean, it's not, yeah. like Trump is a, he is obviously the instigator um, in many ways, but he's not, he's not, he's not a soul. He's not a, he's not an individual actor. Um, he's part of a bigger system. And so, you know, we're, we're already talking about, you know, focusing our work um, on those that did not participate, right? Those that stood up against the objections that, um, you know, are not working as much with some of the others, but that's a conversation we're, we're in the midst of right now. And I think, I think we're going to learn a lot more in the days ahead because so far what we're learning is terrifying about the level of complicity. So how would you recommend that people who don't work in this space, that it's not their job, you know, they are supporters of NWF or they're supporters of Prairie Rivers Network, but, um, you know, they are lay people. How, how can regular people engage in what we're trying to do here? What is the most effective way? Yeah, I mean, look, folks are busy, right? Folks are trying to put food on the table. They're trying to, you know, raise their families, everything else. Um, there's lots, so many different ways to, to get involved. One is, you know, become part, part of the organizations, right? I mean, join Prairie Rivers, join the, the Federation or better, join both. Um, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for activism, um, even during a pandemic, um, ways for folks to get involved. You know, we have a ton of, you know, programs with, you know, cleanup you know, projects, folks who want to get their hands dirty or stuff at schools, if they want to be involved with kids. Um, and so I would just encourage folks to, you know, check out the National Wildlife Federation website and, you know, see all the different programs and see if there's something that, you know, piques your interest. But, you know, we need more active, um, you know, participants um, because at the end of the day, they, the best things that happen in conservation are, um, you know, things that happen when they're, you know, people powered and when there's, you know, real, real good work going on. Um, on the ground in particular. And so, you know, no matter where you are in the region, um, you know, we'd love to have you have you involved in helping with the many fights, whether it's clean water or climate or restoration work or trying to have, you know, more uh, more productive, cleaner um, forms of industry and production. Um, lots of opportunities to participate. Colin, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, and uh, really appreciate, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you guys. I love working with you, Robert, and the whole Prairie Rivers Network team. So appreciate you guys are part of the Federation family. President-elect Joseph R. Biden's inauguration is set for January 20th. And as we heard from Colin, there are reasons to be hopeful for the future. Still, work from organizations like the National Wildlife Federation and Prairie Rivers Network continues to be more important than ever. We will continue to push for the reversal of so many policies and laws under the Trump administration that have set us back, that have put people and the environment at risk, that have made it even harder to hold polluters accountable. Again, thank you to Colin for joining us for this episode, and thank you for listening and for your support. See you next time.